This is Paul's former life. He's holding this up as the wrong way to pursue righteousness. This righteousness that manifests itself in relying on family and rituals and goodness. So now I just want to invite you to think about yourself. How are you presently trying to be acceptable to God? What efforts are you making toward heaven? Does your resume or your case for being righteous have similarities with Paul's old resume? Are you also relying on family and rituals and goodness? Sometimes people will make it obvious that they're relying on their family heritage when it comes to religious things. They'll think, and this may be your situation, you think, I'm okay with God because I'm from a certain church or my family has always been part of this particular strain of Christianity. Like, that's our identity. And you might think that identification with a certain faith community checks the religious box for you. Because your family has always done that. Are you relying on rituals that you've been through to make yourself acceptable to God? Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you have taken communion. Maybe you've been through confirmation. Maybe like you go to church every week. Okay, these are all rituals. These are things that we do as part of our religion. We think, okay, maybe you've given money to the church. Maybe you've taught a class. Maybe you fasted, and maybe you pray all the time. And maybe you think that by doing these things, you've built up a lot of credit with God. Now, listen, I do want to be clear. Like, these rituals have meaning, and they are edifying. We, we do grow, and these are good things to practice. We're just saying that participating in these rituals doesn't make us good. These rituals and the things that we do as part of our faith are meant to remind us where our goodness comes from. But these rituals don't make us acceptable to God. Are you relying on your own goodness? I think that probably of these three, like family rituals and goodness, this one is probably the most common today. It's probably the thing that you would present to me if if you're not trusting in Jesus and yet have a hope of being with God forever is just this simple statement of, I'm a good person. Like, I take up causes. Like, I'm a crusader out there. I'm actively promoting kindness. I volunteer at the children's hospital. I feed the homeless. I care for the poor. Those are really impressive things, and those are good things. Just like what Paul shared about his own life was good. That's why it's so strange to hear him say that he's counted those things as rubbish. He counts his own resume as rubbish. Why? Paul knows something, something really important that we have to let sink into our souls and our minds, our hearts. He knows that God's standard is perfection. Perfection. 
He knows that his own resume, that resume he just spelled out for us in Philippians 3, he knows that his own resume is as good as it gets, that no one could have a better one that he has. And he knows that it's not enough. Because God's standard is perfection. Perfect law keeping. So when we say a person has to, does have to be good to be acceptable to God, yeah, it's good with a capital G. Good as in perfect. Let's see if we can drive it home a little more. How would it make you feel if there was an entrance exam to get into your school of choice and there were one million questions on the exam? So you're trying to get into a school. They say, you gotta take this entrance exam. There's one million questions. You, you do the exam. It takes you two years to complete the exam. You hit submit, it goes in, and a month later, you, you get an email in your inbox with the results of the test, and it says, congratulations. You only missed one question. Unfortunately, we regret to inform you that you do not meet the qualifications of academic rigor that we require. Feel free to apply again next year. How defeating would that be? It's the great misunderstanding that we have regarding religion in our country. We haven't understood that like this imaginary school, God's standard is perfection. Paul was like that student who got every question right except for one. He wasn't good enough. If anyone had reason to put confidence in their own life and in their own efforts and in their flesh, Paul had more reason. He came really close. And he's the one that tells us that there's no use pursuing righteousness this way. You could be great at all those things we talked about, giving money, time with the poor, time with the children's hospital, baptism, confirmation, all that. But if you've ever failed to love God, and if you've ever failed to love your neighbor as yourself, and if you've ever lied, and if you've ever lusted, and if you've ever had a proud thought, you're out. No one can be good enough to please God. It won't work to pursue a righteousness of your own. But it's still true that in order to be acceptable to God, we have to be good. It's still true. So how is this possible? Well, Paul tells us about the wrong way, but then he also tells us about the right way to pursue righteousness. There's this other thing. There's this other kind of righteousness that he mentions in verse 9. And this is the reason we exist, is to pass this message on to people as clearly as possible, that the right way to pursue righteousness is to receive the righteousness from God. According to verse nine, there is a righteousness that comes from God. Notice those words, the righteousness from God. Because it's 
from God. That means it comes to us from the outside. It's not in you. It's not in me. It comes to us from God, from the outside. The righteousness from God. Think about what that means. Think about the quality of this righteousness and why we should want this righteousness instead of the one that we try to create. Think about what it means that it's from God. It means that this righteousness is sufficient righteousness because God's the one, God's the one who's providing it. God is the one who requires us to be righteous in order to be in his presence. So what better righteousness could we have than one that comes from him because we know that it's enough. We don't have to wonder whether it's enough. He's the one requiring it. He's also the one giving it. So we know it's sufficient. We know he accepts it. Augustine said, what God requires, God gives. What God requires, God gives. Meaning that if God expects you and me to have something to offer him, like if he's expecting something from us, he also gives it. He gives that thing. Did you know that, that God does not expect anything from you that he is also not offering to give you? What does that mean? It means that you don't have to keep working to try to purify your own righteousness and refine it to an acceptable level of purity in order to offer it to God. You could never do that. You could never refine your own goodness enough. There's always gonna be this impurity, this dirt mixed with the offering of your life to God. We cannot make ourselves clean. The message that we exist to tell is that the righteousness of God is free. And it comes to us from the outside. And it's sufficient. How do we get it? Paul tells us that too, verse nine. It is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that depends on faith. That's how we get it. It depends on, do you see that word? It depends on faith. Faith in Christ in order to get this righteousness from God that's sufficient, that he finds acceptable, that will guarantee that you are able to enjoy God's presence always, in order to have that, in order to receive that, it depends on your faith in Jesus. Now, there's hardly anything more nebulous than for someone to say that they believe in Jesus. What does that mean? When someone says they believe in Jesus, what do we have to believe about Jesus in order to receive this righteousness that comes from God? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I'm telling you, you have to have this righteousness from God and that it depends on you believing in Jesus. What do you need to believe? Very simply, something about his life, 
something about his death and something about his resurrection. See, we're gonna trade all this stuff, like our trust in family, in ritual, in our own goodness, goodness, that's all going out the window so we can trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're making that exchange. That's the exchange that I want you to make. Family and ritual and personal goodness, gone. Turning to trust in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You trust in his life. You believe in his life, that he lived the perfect life, perfect law-keeping, and that it was for you, that he walked out that obedience before God for you. You believe that about his life. You believe something about his death, that when he died on the cross, it was to make atonement for your sins, your personal sins, and that you believe he did that for you. And you believe that he was resurrected in his body on the third day, conquering death and evil for you that his resurrection is the guarantee of your future resurrection. It was all done for you, his life, his death, his resurrection. Righteousness or goodness comes through faith in Christ, in those things. So, substitute trusting in your own family and ritual and goodness to instead place your trust in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. Turn from self-trust to Christ-trust. That's the turn that brings a person from death to life. It's not only a turn from death to life, it's also a turn from work to rest. And it's also a turn turn from shame to belonging. I've got to say one more thing, and then we'll be done, but what we're about to notice here in this text is um, the importance of it, I really don't think can be overstated especially in the religiosity that we live among. That here's, here's this last important thing. Just noticing in this passage that the thing that Paul emphasizes as he's talking about his own life, talking about what Jesus has done for him, the thing that he emphasizes is not being saved. the thing that he emphasizes as being of surpassing worth is knowing Jesus. He mentions that twice, verse eight and verse 10. We didn't read verse 10. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's verse eight, verse 10, that I may know him. Why is that so important? Because 
just as big a part of the religiosity that we swim in is this idea that salvation is transactional. Like, if we will only do this, then God will give us a ticket to heaven. That's a transactional view of Christianity and salvation. That's not Paul's view. Look what he writes in verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I have counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain what? Heaven? In order that, wouldn't you expect the text to say that? I've counted the loss of all things in order that I may gain heaven or gain salvation or get forgiveness from God. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain not something, but someone. Not a benefit from God, a person. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Christianity is not transactional. God is not handing out tickets. Christianity is relational. God took on flesh. God doesn't hand out tickets. He puts on flesh. God, the second person, took on flesh to come and live among us and to be with us and eat and drink and talk and walk with us and pray with us and cry out to God with us. die for us and to be known as intimately as possible. In my view, the great mystery in the Christian life is not the resurrection. It's the incarnation that God would dare to be known so intimately by us. That's the reward that Paul emphasizes. You are invited today to embrace Jesus Christ, Son of God. If you have never trusted him before, embrace him. And especially if you have trusted him before, embrace him. He doesn't just offer gifts. This God offers himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we can hardly believe how wonderful these things are. That salvation could be free. That salvation isn't even the best part. That you don't just hand us a ticket, but you want to know me. Not just cleanse me of my sins, but also walk alongside me as I stumble and try to get back up. That you would exercise patience with me, patience with me and with us. 
that you would suffer the vulnerability of being known and sometimes being rejected by me in certain hours and certain days. And always come back to the table the next day. Not angry. Not hurt. Just knowing my heart. What an incredible God. Amen.